Thelma Todd was the original Hollywood bombshell blonde. Without her, there would have been no Jean Harlow, no Jane Mansfield, no Marilyn Monroe. Dubbed the ice cream blonde, Thelma fashioned the template from which these other platinum beauties were created. But on December 16, 1935, at 29 years, with her fame at its crest, her fairy tale came to an abrupt and tragic ending. Was it an accident, suicide, or murder? And if it was murder, who would have done such a thing? Her jealous ex-husband, her married lover, his wife, Thelma's stalker, or possibly even the mob? Travel with me back to the heart of the Great Depression. Salutations! Welcome back to Scalawags, the podcast where I, your host Marguerite, tell you a story about mendacious pettifoggers, pusillanimous scofflaws, and knavish skullduggery. In other words, historical crimes. You know I like to bring you stories that you aren't familiar with, and you probably saw this one and thought, I know about Thelma Todd. But do you? Like many Hollywood deaths, a great deal of misinformation swirls around Thelma's untimely demise, obscuring the truth. So today, I want to debunk many of the myths and put her death into its proper historical context that explains much of the hysteria. First of my sources... Uh, The primary source that I did use is a book, Testimony of a Death, Thelma Todd, Mystery, Media, and Myth in 1935, Los Angeles, by Patrick Jennings and Marshall Crotty. This book is excellent because it contains uh, actual portions of the recorded testimony, the autopsy. Um, They actually share their primary sources with you. The second uh, thing I relied on is the excellent podcast, You Must Remember This, by Karina Longsworth. If you like Hollywood history, you need to be listening to that podcast. She did a series on dead blondes in 2017 and another on fact-checking Hollywood Babylon, which is a book that we're going to discuss. I also used uh, books, The Worst Hard Time by Timothy Egan. That is particularly about the Dust Bowl. Uh, Rainbow's End, The Crash of 1929 by Maury Klein. Tinseltown by William J. Mann. The Forgotten Man by Amity Schles. And articles by Britannica.com and History.com. When you think of the Great Depression, you probably think in terms of black and white or sepia, Dorothea Lange photographs of a migrant mother, the Dust Bowl, Brother Can You Spare a Dime, but the 1930s were so much more. 
this is the height of Hollywood glamour. This is the Harlem Renaissance, and there are some big changes to society going on. And these changes are important to our story. So let's geek on history for a bit. The Great Depression really kicked off in 1929 uh, with the stock market crash, but it wasn't really just one crash. It was a series of them. We know that October 24th, 1929 is considered Black Thursday, but it's really multiple days. The, the stock market throughout the year would crash and recover and crash and recover. And it actually recovered some from Black Thursday, but um, when the market did finally crash, it, it took everyone down with them. Ordinary people had been encouraged to view playing the stock market as a sort of get-rich-quick, and they had invested their life savings, and people had been encouraged to do things that were called, they were buying on margin and short-selling. Think of, they're playing with borrowed money and borrowed stocks, and all of this is financed by the banks, so when people couldn't pay the banks back, the banks went down too. And when the banks failed, other people's money went with them because it wasn't guaranteed. And this was global, not only the United States. Then there is the Dust Bowl. The Dust Bowl centered on Oklahoma and the Texas Panhandle, and it bled over into the adjacent states, uh, Colorado, Kansas, New Mexico. The first big storm hit in 1931. The Great Plains had always suffered from periodic droughts, but this drought was different. Farmers had been encouraged to settle the area. We've spoken before about the, the Homestead Act, but they were encouraged to plow every square inch deeply. So they obliterated the native grasses, which had anchored the soil. And this area is notoriously windy. And at the start of what came to be called the Dirty Thirties, the wind just picked up the land and carried it away. The entire topsoil became airborne. Massive dirt storms rose up and buried towns. The dust clogged machines and human lungs. Humans and livestock died. Animals that weren't killed from breathing the dust often starved because there was nothing to eat. Uh, people developed uh, chronic lung issues from the dusty air. They called it dust pneumonia. They would actually lubricate up their noses and put on homemade masks when they went out to protect themselves. The dirt hung in the sky, blocking out the sun. Sounds like a post-apocalyptic uh, landscape, doesn't it? There were many waves of the Dust Bowl, and it sparked massive immigration in the country, especially from... They viewed everyone that was migrating as Okies, but they, they came from all of the areas, and they were traveling to California. They were not welcomed there, and the view is that these were a bunch of farmhands, but actually many of these immigrants were white-collar workers. Everyone had left the areas because the towns just weren't there anymore, and the agricultural economy that was already hurting, this was like a death blow right in the breadbasket. In 1935, the year of Thelma's death was the worst year possible. So put a pin in this because we're coming back to it. 
not everything was doom and gloom. Uh, this is also the time of the Harlem Renaissance. From the 20s into the 30s, it saw a blossoming of Black American culture, especially in New York. Uh, there was the intellectual scene, um, art, theater, literature, Langston Hughes, W.E.B. Dubois, Zora Neale Hurston, the, all the music. New York was just one location yeah, but it was really happening all across the Northeast and the Midwest into urban settings. And this was caused by the Great Migration after World War I, um, when black communities were able to move out of the South where they were being oppressed, and they moved up North and they moved to more urban settings. But this Renaissance was really centered on the Harlem neighborhood in Manhattan, but during the 30s, these communities were hit hard by the Great Depression. And as the job market squeezed, black people were the first ones squeezed out. And this comes to a head again in 1935 with the Harlem riots. So again, put a pin here, coming back to it. This is the time of Hollywood glamour. Now, how did Hollywood become the heart of American filmmaking? After all, silent movies started out with inspiration from vaudeville and Broadway, so it would seem more reasonable for the movie industry to spring up around New York. At this time, the West Coast was mostly just desert and ranching communities. Well, you can thank Edison. He tried to create a monopoly and held most of the patents related to movies. So to escape his reach and possible patent infringement lawsuits, movie making, which was entirely indie at that point, this is prior to the studio system, uh, moved further and further west to get away from Edison until they ran into the ocean. They ran out of land. But there they found cheap, uninhabited land. The climate was good with plenty of natural light room to build sets, and no Thomas Edison. Bonus. So not only did Hollywood become the place movies were made, but it also became the center for distribution and exhibition by owning the theaters where the movies were shown. So an industry that came to California to avoid a monopoly turned into a monopoly. And at the time, they also pretty much had a lockdown on worldwide distribution of their movies. You can thank a man named Adolf Zukor and Famous Players. He was one of the three men who would create Paramount and was basically the king daddy of the studio system. It was all his brainchild. So as a way to market themselves, the studios marketed their actors as stars. They basically created a new form of celebrity. The first stars were crossovers from vaudeville and stage. And Hollywood, along this time, begins morphing from the rural landscape of the bean fields and orange groves into towns. And finally, the urban sprawl that just took over until a massive city rose, one that was built on the film industry. The Far West has always been a frontier land, but... La La Land still had the fields and mines at its heart, and all the corruption and vice that had existed in these Wild West and Frontier and mining communities 
was still there in Los Angeles, just with a glossy coat slapped on over the rock. Silent film industry took root in the early 1900s, but by the late 20s, they moved to talkies. And the first talking movie was 1927, The Jazz Singer. Many actors couldn't make the transition. Uh, you probably have seen Singing in the Rain with Debbie Reynolds, Gene Kelly, and Donald O'Connor. Not everybody was suited for uh, spoken roles. Thelma Todd started as a silent movie actress, but was one of the few to make the transition. Now, Thelma was born. Are you ready? Thelma Alice Todd. <laughs> Surprise, no name change. Uh, she was born in 1906 in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Um, her middle name, Alice, was for her mother. She was bright and bubbly and beautiful enough that she was spotted by a talent scout when she was Miss Massachusetts, 1925. Thelma had intended to be a teacher, but instead she was signed by Paramount at 18 years. Instead of making movies for Paramount, they mostly loaned her out to other studios. And although she was doing well, they abruptly dropped her when her contract ran out. Thelma would always say it was because she wouldn't allow herself to be coerced onto the casting couch. She had a reputation for being smart and practical. According to um, Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This, Thelma walked out on a party of studio execs who were drinking and socializing with young starlets. She wanted nothing to do with the lifestyle. She didn't object to drinking and socializing, but on her own time and not as a job requirement. But she was quickly signed to a new contract. This was in 1928 and she was on the come up because Thelma's beauty may have gotten her foot in Hollywood's door but once Hollywood transitioned to talkies, she demonstrated a real flair for comedy. She made movies with the Marx Brothers, uh, Laurel and Hardy, and then was paired with Zasu Pitts for comedy shorts. Producer Hal Roach wanted to create a female version of Laurel and Hardy, and he did. They were very successful. They made 17 short movies, and Zasu and Thelma remained extremely close for the rest of Thelma's life. When Zasu left, Thelma took on a new partner and she made another 21 short films with Patsy Kelly. Her role was the sensible one. She was the level-headed foil to the ditzy sidekick. Now, Hollywood did hurt during the Great Depression, box office revenues went down because people can't spend money they don't have, but they did still go to the movies, just not as often. So to lure people in, theaters started offering things like double features, and they began selling popcorn and candy. They gave away prizes like dishes, anything they could think of to get people in the door, and they pushed out entertainment that took people's minds off their troubles. Musicals were big and so were comedies, but what Hollywood was really selling was glamour. Stars were larger than life. Cary Grant, Katherine Hepburn, 
Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Jimmy Stewart, Jean Harlow, who would go on to perfect the ice blonde bombshell, Shirley Temple. Well, Hollywood succeeded, but there was a dark side too, because studios had to cut costs and they laid off workers. The people who still had their jobs worked six days a week, 14 hours a day with few breaks. It was grueling work, and if you complained, well, you were replaceable. In 1931, Thelma was cast in her first dramatic lead, The Corsair. The film wasn't a success, but it would change Thelma's life because she met a man. There's always a man. This man was her director, Roland West. West wanted to remake Thelma into a dramatic actress, and she had always been wary of becoming the butt of jokes and was ready to move on from comedy. West gave her a new stage name, Allison Lloyd, the only stage name she would ever use. Soon, the pair were romantically involved. On the face, they seemed like an unlikely couple. She was known as the Ice Cream Blonde or Hot Toddy, which was a nickname she didn't like and never used. West was 20 years her senior and considered not a looker. By the pictures, if I had to pick a celebrity he resembles, I'd say Joe Pesci. Um, West isn't Hollywood handsome. He isn't terrible looking either. He just looks like a regular person. But most importantly, he seems to have taken Thelma seriously. She was intelligent, and West treated her as such. Problem? West was already married. So when the movie ended, they went their separate ways. Thelma married someone else by eloping in 1933. Spoiler alert, it's not good. Pasquale Pat DeSico. Pat was a broccoli fortune heir. Yes, really. He was called the Broccoli King because his family made a fortune with large-scale farming. He was handsome, rich, and quick with the fists. She began being seen with bruises. She went to the UK to make a movie. Pat stayed behind. While she was in the UK, she, uh, Thelma became close friends with the Lupinos, Stanley and his teenage daughter, Ida Lupino. Also, while she was gone, she famously changed her will to leave her husband, Pat DeSico, a single dollar. Finally, she filed to divorce him. The story is that he was pressuring her to let him become her agent, and she was not having it. He would later claim the divorce was just about her career, but if changing your will to leave someone a dollar wasn't a message, I don't know what is. Um, he would marry again. This time, he would go on and marry Gloria Vanderbilt, who was only 17 at the time. Pat was 32. And when Gloria divorced him, she would say he beat her almost daily. He married and divorced again. It's safe to say he was not exactly husband material or boyfriend material or particularly deserving of oxygen. Thelma and West then rekindled their romance. He was estranged from his wife at that time, Jewel Carmen. Jewel was quite a character herself. She was involved in frequent lawsuits. 
um, Thelma was also in the process of divorcing DeSico. So Thelma, West, and Jewel all had homes near one another. West and Thelma actually went into business together and they opened Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe in Malibu. She had an apartment upstairs from the cafe, but she frequently stayed at Roland West's villa, which is just up the hill from the cafe. Went pretty handy. She was a smart cookie. She knew that stardom wasn't going to last forever. And West had stopped directing films at this point, and he is handling their business full-time together and dealing in real estate. Thelma was famous in Hollywood for being gorgeous, smart, and normal. Um, she was also known for her joie de vivre. According to the book Testimony of Death, she once smuggled in six bottles of whiskey past customs during Prohibition by sewing them inside her mink coat. This was in order to win a bet. Uh, she was friendly with everyone on the sets and had the sort of laugh that would get everyone laughing with her. She played the piano, she wrote poetry, but she also had a head for numbers and math. So it seems like everything is roses for Thelma now. Then she got her first extortion letter. It was actually before she moved into the apartment over her cafe, uh, February 1935. Yes, we're now moving into the year um, around Thelma's death. Um, she began receiving notes signed with playing card drawings of aces, um, different types of aces. She got the hearts, spades, diamonds, and the notes promised to wreck that Santa Monica cafe of yours or cause Thelma injuries unless $10,000 was paid. The writer was dubbed the ace. And during this time, Thelma's house was broken into and the ace then stepped up and began calling and threatening to kidnap Thelma and hold her for ransom. Now, an ex-boyfriend of Thelma's, an orchestra leader named Abe Lyman, was a suspect, although he insisted he knew nothing about it. The FBI took these threats seriously enough that they assigned two agents as bodyguards for Thelma. We're going to come back to this, so yet again, put a pin in it. Now, as I said, um, the depression was global. And when the U.S. stock market crashed, there were reverberations around the world. Uh, markets crashed in London. German banks also failed. Jobs evaporated overnight. And much of Europe had never recovered from World War I. So during this time, uh, Hitler is rising. Monarchies are falling apart. New nations are being formed to fight again. And in the mid-30s, we really see the table being set for World War II. This is also the golden age of mysteries. Mystery fans will recognize all of these names. At this time, Agatha Christie was writing, John Dixon Carr, Ellery Queen, Dorothy L. Sayers, Georgette Heyer, 
T.S. Eliot, thanks for cats, dude, um, Hemingway, Dashiell Hammett was in his twilight, but he was still writing. And this is when he wrote the Sam Spade series for Mal with Maltese Falcon and the Nick and Nora Thin Man series. So everyone loves a mystery. And in the news at this time is the biggest mystery of all, a real life one. 1935 starts out with the trial of Bruno Hauptmann for the Lindbergh baby kidnapping and murder. That is what is dominating the news um, of 1935, starting in January, because true crime always sells. It's not a new phenomenon, always has, always will. And there is a lot going on worldwide in 1935. This is when Hitler really starts kicking off. He starts flouting the terms of the Versailles Treaty. He reinstates the Luftwaffe, the Air Force. He rearms Germany and begins conscription into the military. And this is the year he, that Germany passes the Nuremberg Laws, which stripped all rights from Jewish people, including their citizenship. There are huge changes in the U.S., um, FDR has had success in signing the Social Security Act, but had a big failure with what's known as the Schechter chicken case, um, which for my lawyer friends listening, we all studied that in law school. That case really held that the president had overstepped and that he couldn't regulate local commerce, only interstate commerce. And they violated the separation of powers by giving local rules force of law. The Supreme Court also slapped down a large portion of his National Industrial Recovery Act as unconstitutional. This is what led to FDR's attempts to pack the court. So the government infighting is dominating national news, along with the environmental disaster known as the Dust Bowl and a day that came to be known as Black Sunday. Welcome to Not An Ad Break, where instead of discounts for luxury linens or mattresses, you get a word of the week. This week, our word is mendacious. Last week, we learned that a petty fogger is a lawyer who handles low-level or petty matters and spends all their time arguing about unimportant or trivial matters in the courtroom and is willing to use underhanded means to win. So what is a mendacious pettifogger? Well, mendacious describes someone who is given to dishonesty and has a tendency to lie. Someone who is untrustworthy or deceitful. Mendacious comes from the Latin root mend, meaning a physical defect or fault. And then mendacium, which is a lie, untruth, or falsehood. This is the same root that gives us the word amend, which originally meant to correct an error. So, mendacious, likely to lie or be dishonest. Thus, a mendacious pettifogger is a shady lawyer. And now, back to our show. April 14th, 1935 started out as a nice day on the plains. Uh, for a change, you could actually see the sky and people were lured out of their homes, but it wouldn't last. 
reports said that you could see a black wall rapidly moving in. Uh, people realized that, that something bad was on the way and they tried to outrun the cloud and they couldn't because it was moving too fast. When it hit, uh, the world came to a stop. The dust was so thick and dark that you, you couldn't see an estimated 3 million tons of sop soil was carried off on the wind that day and the cloud was two miles high. People were instantly disoriented and they were suffocating in the cloud. It hit Oklahoma first and traveled up into Kansas and down into the Texas panhandle. Birds were so panicked that they would fly until they dropped to the ground from exhaustion. 1935 is also the year of the Harlem race riots. And this is largely considered the end of the Harlem Renaissance because Harlem had been hit so hard by the depression. And this is what's considered the first modern race riot. There are a lot of things earlier that were called quote race riots, uh, like what happened in Tulsa, but those were really just, those were just massacres. Um, they weren't really a riot. Uh, in this case, it involved a 16-year-old black Puerto Rican boy who was caught shoplifting. He took a 10-cent penknife and was detained by a clerk at Crest 5 and 10 right across the street from the Apollo. So the boy was detained and the police were called. The clerk and the boy named Lino Rivera really got into it. And Lino bit the clerk who was holding him on the hand. The clerk threatened to take him downstairs and beat him. So people began congregating outside and demonstrating. And there was a woman outside who had seen the boy being detained. And she began yelling that they're holding him in there. They're going to beat him. This is not without precedent. Um, so the store became so alarmed by all the people gathering. They tell the police, just forget it. Let him go. And the police make the decision because of the people gathered out front, we should just send him out the back to avoid the crowds. Well, the crowds don't see this, of course. They assume he is still inside, and as time stretches on, they begin assuming the worst. An ambulance was called to come and look at the clerk's hand where he had been bitten, but this just confirmed for the crowd that someone is hurt. So they throw a, somebody throws a rock through the window, and the woman who was outside yelling gets arrested by the police for disorderly conduct. The crowd is ordered to disperse. The store is closed up early, but misinformation is spreading rapidly. Someone printed up handbills about the brutal beating of a 12-year-old boy for stealing a piece of candy. Crowds gather. They start breaking windows. Uh, people start looting. Police try to get Lino to come in with him and show people he's not dead, as the rumor is now spreading. But he refused because he really was a little punk. So the police have to go to his house, drag him out. They bring him downtown to show people that he is alive and well. But Lino is really just the spark, not the cause of the fire. There was a long-standing history of racial tensions and police brutality. And by the end of the next day, when things had settled down, three people had died and another hundred or so were injured. There was lots of property damage. Um, but sociologist Alan D. Grimshaw called the Harlem riots the first manifestation of, the mod of a modern form 
of racial rioting, and he cites three criteria, that the violence is directed almost entirely against property, there's an absence of clashes between racial groups, and it's a struggle between a lower class, and this is the word they use from the time, Negro population and police forces. Whereas previous, quote, race riots had been characterized by violent clashes between groups of blacks and white rioters, um, more the subsequent riots would resemble the riots in Harlem. So back to our story in 1935. While all of this is kicking off, remember how we talked about Thelma and her stalker and the threats of kidnapping? Those threats started in February and the trial of Hotman had begun in January. And threats of extortion and kidnapping were running rampant at the time. Thelma becomes fed up with being guarded by the FBI and watched constantly. She liked her freedom. So she takes matters into her own hands. And when the extortionist calls, she sets up a meeting with him and goes armed with her twenty-two revolver. Once she gets to the location where she's told to meet him, outside Warner's Theater, there is a man standing there. And he tells her he's not the one who called, but he directs her to go to a remote spot to meet the extortionist. She's no dummy. She refuses. Um, she tries a second time for a meeting, and this time the man uh, over the phone tells her to go to her remote location. Well, she's not doing that. She's too smart for that. Then the FBI arrests a man in New York and charges him with the extortion. This man was a landlord, and they had determined the location of the letters that she was receiving were being mailed out by him out of his building. Meanwhile, a Long Island reporter begins getting phone calls from someone claiming that, no, he's the real ace. The reporter believed him, gets the police involved, and they actually catch the person who is making the calls. It turned out it is not the landlord, but one of his tenants and a man with a history of mental issues. Um, he confessed he'd been the one all along, that it was just for attention. He was committed to a mental hospital in Manhattan, and psychiatrists there um, said he had a, what they called a fantasy love affair with Thelma, and that he had previously sent her love letters before he began switching off to, to threatening ones. He just wanted her attention, but there were lots of rumors after she died about the stalker. However, he was in this insane asylum during her death. So all the rumors about the stalker being involved are bunkum. If you want, you can Google the pictures of Thelma lying dead in the car, or yes, you can check out my Pinterest, at Marguerite Says, but they are easily found. She's curled on her left side, still wearing her mink coat with a platinum sapphire and diamond brooch pinned to her chest, along with a wilted flower and the dress she was last seen wearing on Saturday night, the 14th. On her hands are three delicate platinum rings. Platinum was the fashion of the time. Her curls, also platinum, are artfully tumbled, almost shielding her face. On the seat next to her is her evening, pur evening purse, um, its contents complete. It's just a little tiny evening bag. The, the photos look almost staged, but there is a 
peculiar slackness of muscle that the movies never quite get right. But if you have ever seen a deceased person, you know what I'm talking about. Her date of death is usually given as December 16th, but she almost certainly died in the wee hours of Sunday the 15th. Although some strange and conflicting witness sightings would continually muddy the waters. We know that Saturday, December 14th, Thelma went Christmas shopping with her mother. Then she went to the dentist for a procedure. She had a tooth removed, a temporary bridge put in there. Um, she gassed up her phaeton, her car. And then she and her mother went home so Thelma could get ready for a party that night at the Trocadero nightclub. Stanley Lupino, um, her friend from the UK, they were he was part of a famous family of actors, first on stage and later in the movies. He was hosting a party in honor of his daughter, Ida, who was a close friend of Thelma's. Ida, by the way, was an early badass in the industry. She was an actor, singer, and later a director and producer in a time when women did not do that sort of thing. She directed eight movies, over 100 episodes of television, and she's particularly known for her, for her noir. Ida particularly wanted Thelma to be there, but Roland West and Pat DeSico were not invited. Ida knew that if Thelma wanted Roland, she would bring him. And Ida didn't think Thelma would want to see DeSico. But according to You Must Remember This, DeSico called Ida and wanted to know why he wasn't invited. Awkward. Ida called Thelma, who said it was fine. They got along just fine now. So Ida had a place set for him at the party. Roland West didn't plan to join them. He had work to do. So Thelma was being driven by her chauffeur. Thelma and Roland reportedly bantered about her having a curfew. He told her, be home by 2 a.m. And she said, 2.05. And he said, well, she should just stay at her mother if she was going to be out that late. Now, the media would later have a field day with this, but this was reportedly just banter. They just did that sort of thing all the time. He told, so told her, don't drink too much, and she just laughed at him. Thelma and her mother left in her chauffeur limousine. Along the way, she asked the chauffeur, whose name was Peters, to stop at a florist where she bought a flower and pinned it to her chest with her brooch, where it would be found Monday morning wilted. Peters took Thelma to the Trocadero, where she said goodbye to her mother. Peters then took Alice Tom Todd home. Um, Pat DeSico didn't show at the party after begging the invitation, and Ida Lupino was pissed. So after he put her in that kind of an awkward spot, then she heard he was downstairs in the nightclub with a woman. And so when Thelma went downstairs with Stanley to dance at the nightclub and she saw Pat and the woman, she went over and told him off a bit for upsetting Ida. Uh, he apologized. It was not a big thing, but they were seen and gossiped about. The chauffeur took Thelma home. It was 3.15 Sunday morning. 
This is the last time she was seen alive. Probably. He let her out in front of the restaurant. Now, Monday morning, Thelma's maid arrived and opened the garage where she found Thelma. She called Thelma's mother and then the police. Alice Todd arrives. She's extremely upset. She's wailing that her daughter has been killed. Pat DeSico hears word of this and he shows up and he tells the press that uh, he just had to see if it was really true that Thelma was dead. The detectives roll up and the press hops out of their cars along with the detectives, which is why there were so many pictures of this. There are so many pictures of the crime scene of uh, Thelma's body. And that's because the, the press would literally just hang out with the detectives and follow them places. And these pictures actually ran in the newspapers the next day. That's why you can find everything if you Google it. Um, the garage looks like any other garage except for the ritzy automobile in it, um, a Phaeton touring car. The car is backed in all the way. Uh, this Thelma's chauffeur always backed it in for her so she could just drive out. The car, uh, the garage is lined with shelves of old paint cans and jars. In the back's a steamer trunk, some old tires. It's a, a humble setting for the death of one of Hollywood's brightest stars. Now, the obvious conclusion is that this was an accident. It had been a very cold December night and Thelma must have started the car to keep warm and either fallen asleep or passed out. The detective who examined the scene noted that the car's ignition was still in the on position and her skin was very bright red, which is a telltale sign of carbon monoxide poisoning. And her expensive jewelry is all present. There's the absence of any obvious violence. But this is the 1930s, the heyday of the golden age of mystery, and everybody loves a good mystery. Questions immediately started. Why was Thelma in the car at all? And why was the car off, not running, when there was still gas in the tank? And what about that tiny smidge of blood on the edge of her mouth? The rumor mill just instantly cranked into action. It didn't help matters that the chief of LAPD's homicide squad showed up to strut around for the news media. He even posed for photographs with Thelma's body. And given all the grim news of the year, the media was ready for a distraction and this had it all. Hollywood glamour, a tragic death under mysterious circumstances, Pat DeSico was rumored to maybe have mob connections. Now the restaurant and Thelma's apartment are down the hill on the from on the highway. And this is where the chauffeur had dropped her off. It was several hundred feet up a street drive to the garage and to Roland West's villa. There are some narrow stairs to climb up there. So um she would have gone up, had to have gone up those switchback stairs after a long night of drinking. She's wearing satin slippers. Why didn't Thelma just go into her apartment above the restaurant? 
Thelma did have a key to the apartment, um, but the deadbolt was thrown. And this required a second key, and her maid had only put the single key in her purse. West, Roland West, had deadbolted the apartment door for safety before he went up to his villa, and that is something he was known to do most nights. So Thelma gets home. She is locked out and can't get in. This had happened before. Uh, on other occasions when locked out, Thelma had gone up to the villa and woken Pat up when she was locked, or um, Roland up when she was locked out, once she had even broken a window in her apartment to get inside. But instead, on that night, she may have climbed the hill, gone into the garage to sleep, turned on the car for warmth, and um, has been overcome by the fumes. Now, everyone from the party at the Trocadero and Peters, the chauffeur, were all going around insisting that Thelma had seemed perfectly sober, but the autopsy would show differently. So let's talk about that autopsy. The man who conducted the autopsy was named Wagner, and the cause of death was definitely carbon monoxide poisoning. He asserted that the levels were well above a lethal dose and found that she had either gone to sleep with the car running um, or was overcome with the fumes and became weak and disoriented and was unable to help herself. He decided that the small amount of blood on the corner of her mouth was from striking her face against the steering wheel as she lost consciousness. The uh, piece of dental work, the temporary bridge, from her visit to the dentist that day had come loose and it's found on the floorboard. He confidently set the time of death as sometime in the early hours of that Sunday morning. Uh, we know she was last seen around 3.15 a.m., so case closed, right? Of course, the media is not content and they went hunting for more and there were plenty of people with stories to tell, including one of the most puzzling includes is from a woman named Martha Ford. Martha was a friend of Thelma's and wife of actor Wallace Ford. Wallace and Martha were former vaudeville and Broadway actors who met, got married while on Broadway, and then Wallace transitioned into playing uh, tough guys on the silver screen. And they were friends of Thelma's. Martha had hosted a party on Sunday and Thelma was invited. Martha and Thelma had been playing phone tag about the party, and according to Martha, Thelma called her Sunday afternoon around 4.30. Now, that's long after she's supposed to have been dead. Martha said that Thelma called to clarify some directions, said that she would be there in half an hour, and wanted to bring a guest. She played coy, not telling Martha who the guest was, and only saying, when you see who I'm bringing, you are going to drop dead. She also told Martha that she was still in evening clothes from a party the day before. Martha says when Thelma didn't show up, she called Thelma's apartment Sunday night around 7 p.m. and spoke with a man who said that he hadn't seen Thelma all day. Now, this threat to turn around everything that everyone knew about the about the death. And Martha 
is someone who knew Thelma well, would certainly recognize her voice on the phone, and she wasn't some strange kook. Martha did say that she was at first confused by the person on the phone and thought she said, this is Velma with a V, and she clarified um, Velma, and the person said, no, Thelma, hot toddy, get a hold of yourself, toots. But Thelma reportedly hated that nickname and wouldn't have used it. But the media took this bit of information and they ran amok. There is also speculation in the media that Thelma might have completed suicide. People came out of the woodwork to say that she was pensive and quiet at the end of the party at the Trocadero. To this, all I can say is it was 3.15 in the morning, and there are just as many people who say that she was her lively self that night. Her actions don't seem truly consistent with suicide. We can never know what is in someone's head, but she was having dental work done that day, going through the pain of having a tooth pulled and a temporary bridge put in while she had was waiting on a new one. Again, it's not determinative, but her personal and professional lives were good. She was buying Christmas presents and had been actively talking to her mother all day, making um, Christmas plans, and it just seems uh, unlikely. It seems an unlikely way that she would have done it in the car like that. She couldn't have been sure she would she would have died when she would have been discovered now newspapers devoted entire pages to debating whether or not it was suicide a tragic accident or murder uh, one paper even pointed out the plot to a betty davis movie where she kills her husband by bashing him in the head and leaving him in a running car inside a closed garage the la examiner devoted an amazing four pages, four full pages of a newspaper to discussing the different theories. A lot of it was made of Thelma being in evening wear and climbing the hill in the dark, although we've already heard that there were stories that she'd been locked out before and had made that same climb in her evening wear to wake up Roland West. Her Thelma's shoes are repeatedly examined, and this is just bonkers to me, but the grand jurors who heard the case had a woman of a similar build wear similar shoes and climb the hill, and then they went and tried to compare the wear on them to Thelma's satin slippers to decide if they were scuffed enough for her to have made the climb. That's just, that's not scientific. In fact, the slippers, contrary to reports, are, were quite scuffed. They were even forensically examined, but of course they couldn't say if the scuff marks were from climbing the stairs or for dancing for hours. She'd been dancing in these shoes all night, and it turns out these weren't even new slippers. They had just been dyed to match her dress. So not even something that's new. So the souls were quite worn. I mentioned a grand jury. There was an inquest and they heard testimony from the coroner, 
all the witnesses, including Martha Ford, uh, Roland West, Pat DeSico. Interestingly, immediately after the death, uh, Pat went to New York and was sort of evading the subpoena. But when he was called on it, he came back and he had pretty much of an alibi. He was with another woman that night. So the inquest returns a verdict of accidental death but do recommend that further investigation should be done, so a grand jury was convened. And the grand jury also investigated, called all the same witnesses. Um, the grand jury foreman was quite a character. He loved to talk, come out and talk to the press, and he would each time drop hints about all the important work they're doing, um, and, and hints about something dramatic is about to be revealed, but it all just came to nothing. The grand jury found no evidence on which to open a murder investigation. And trust me, they would have loved to have continued on. Now, at the inquest and the grand jury um, proceedings, the coroner testified that there was undigested food in Thelma's stomach that would be consistent with um, what she had at dinner still being there in the early morning hours, what she'd eaten Saturday that would still be there in the early morning hours Sunday. So this is, again, something consistent with the time of death being early Sunday. But there is um, so much misinformation out there. There's a story that Thelma had been approached by the mob who wanted to put slot machines in her restaurants and she refused. Uh, this is partly true. The gambling industry was run by the mob and she was approached about putting in some slot machines, but she had rejected them and the proponents had already opened up some down the street. So. They just went down the street and hit up somebody else who said, sure, and they put in slot machines. Also, this is hardly the style of a gangland hit. There is a lot of, uh, there's a story out there about Lucky Luciano that I'll talk about in a minute, about them being in a relationship and how he beat her and got her addicted to amphetamine. This has been thoroughly debunked. There is no evidence that the pair had even met. There are so many oddball stories out there. There's stories in some of the books that I'm about to talk about um, that made a lot of claims about um, Lucky Luciano and uh, the supposed pill addiction. However, they did do a talk screen on Thelma. She was a 0.13 blood alcohol concentration so definitely intoxicated, but there were uh, no other drugs in her system. There were claims by a reporter that producer Hal Roach said that Roland West had confessed to him, to Hal, that, quote, under intense questioning Roland had broken down and admitted to the police that he had a screaming row with Thelma and locked her in the garage so that she wouldn't go back out that night. And she sat in the car with her engine running and was overcome with the fumes. 
Now, this whole story comes out after uh, that no one else can really confirm this. And it's just highly suspicious on the timing. Um, the reporter makes these claims after West is dead and Roach refused to go on the record for this reporter and was highly upset after the article in which he can't claims misconstrued things that he had said to the um, that particular reporter and how Roach passes away not long after this. So n- none of this really makes a lot of sense, although there is another person who comes out of the woodwork, a friend of Roach, would, who would later say, and after Roach had died, that Roach claimed he had been told this confession story that Roland West confessed, not by West, but by three, quote, unknown law enforcement officials. Understand when this is coming out, this is all some 50 years after Thelma's death. And the story this friend alleged Roach told him, it includes a lot of details that are just not accurate. Also, why would the police come over and tell Hal Roach that West had confessed to them 50 years ago and then do do nothing? None of that makes any sense when there was a whole inquest and grand jury investigation. There's no reason that if West had confessed that it wouldn't have come out. Also... There was a couple who lived over that garage. That's right. There were other people there and they heard nothing. In fact, the police were suspicious when they didn't even hear the car start because reportedly the car was quite loud on starting. So they did yet another unscientific experiment and started the car in the garage with people standing in the apartment above the garage listening And they said, huh, you really couldn't hear anything. Um, Nothing dramatic. You could sort of hear it if you were listening to it. But the sound was muffled. So it's not something you would notice in the middle of the night if you were asleep. But a kicking, screaming, yelling fight right outside your window? Yeah, that, that you would notice. Also, there was a night watchman. That's right, a night watchman who patrolled the area and passed by the garage, and he passed by multiple times that night, and he didn't see anything. The final nail in this preposterous theory that West locked her in is the door itself, or should I say doors, because it's there's a double doors, and the latch actually required a padlock to secure it, in order for it to be locked. You couldn't just slide a bolt and have it stay. And the door was not padlocked when the maid got there. In fact, the door was never kept locked and the padlocks weren't even on the doors because the whole mechanism was fairly elaborate and it would take a while to secure the uh, garage. So the idea that Roland had locked Thelma in the garage is really does seem to just be Nonsense. Now, there have been many versions of this story promulgated, and they all seem to trace back to a book called Hollywood Babylon 
by Kenneth Anger, who was a failed filmmaker. And this book tells stories of famous Hollywood scandals from the Golden Age. It was originally published in 1965, but it was quickly banned. In 1975, it was published again and has been described as, quote, essentially a work of fiction. Film historian Kevin Brownlow has repeatedly criticized the book, citing Anger, the author, as saying his research method was, quote, mental telepathy mostly. In other words, it's pretty much full of made-up stuff. But all of these things just muddy the waters and I found articles from as recently as 1990 from the Chicago Tribune that re rely entirely on the fictions perpetrated in Hollywood Babylon and on a book called Hot Toddy. Published 15 years after Babylon, Hot Toddy by a person named Andy Edmonds is riddled with errors regarding Thelma Todd's death. Um, this book seems to be the source of all the mob rumors and the Lucky Luciano story. This book is so full of verifiable factual errors that it's impossible to take anything seriously. The book has times wrong, and we know people's basic movements, where they went when. It has the location of Thelma's apartment wrong, the descriptions of the garage and the scene are wrong, and especially the description of Thelma's body, which the author described as bloodied and battered. She describes lacerations and contusions around Thelma's neck, two cracked ribs, a broken nose, and a chipped front tooth. There were no injuries noted in the autopsy, and you can see these things for yourself. Uh, there are pictures of Thelma's corpse all over the internet. Most telling, this author cites no sources for her information. She simply says she relied, quote, on the record for her facts, yet none of these things are in the record. The so-called facts in this book persisted and even spawned a made-for-TV movie called White Hot, starring Lonnie Anderson. This movie is appalling. It pictures Thelma as some wild, out-of-control creature, um, addicted to pills and sex, and oh, there is just a ton of slut-shaming in these books. And the description of Thelma's corpse, in spite of the numerous people who saw her, including the press, and in spite of all the photographic evidence and the autopsy, they just continued to become more extreme. In 1983, an author wrote in his book, Murder Among the Mighty, all about Thelma's blood-spattered death scene and open wounds and how her throat was bruised, quote, as if someone had shoved a bottle down it. None of this is true. There was a small contusion to her lip that did not break the skin. And but what about that blood? It was very small. It could have come from the fresh dental surgery, knocking out the bridge, or while carbon monoxide poisoning doesn't cause hemorrhaging, it is sometimes known to cause a bit of 
uh, bloody froth to bubble up from the nose or the mouth um, ever so slightly due to the congestion of the mucous membranes. Now, there is a lot of confusion in all sorts of people who claim to see Thelma after the time of her death. They've all been thoroughly debunked, except the only one that is perplexing is Martha Ford, the friend who has always stuck to her story. There are popular little factoids that have been debunked. Uh, we mentioned that the food in her stomach was consistent, but there were peas in her stomach. And there have been numerous stories that peas allegedly weren't served at dinner that night. However, the they were able to confirm with the serving staff that yes, peas were uh, in fact served at dinner that night. Um, this was something that had been used to say that she didn't die early Sunday morning, but it's just another example of things that have muddied the water over the years. Peas. Roland West didn't do himself any favors in the press. He was inconsistent with his details, and he really danced around a lot of the facts, especially when describing living arrangements and who had keys to what and how. Given the conventional morals of the time, living with his girlfriend while he was still legally married would have been extremely scandalous, but he just shouldn't have been so coy with the details. He did testify that their dog, his and Thelma's, whined around 3.30. He got up and covered the dog up and went back to bed. It's possible the dog was whining because Thelma was out there. Did he hear her and refuse to get up because it would serve her right? So he didn't get up and let her in. Did she decide to be stubborn and not admit she had gotten herself locked out again? We don't know, but the simplest theory is usually the correct one. Simplest theory is that Thelma locked herself, found herself locked out. She went up to the villa and was either not able to wake Roland or was too proud to. It's around 3.30 in the morning now. She's been dancing all night and is legally intoxicated. Also, the first workers at the restaurant usually showed up at 5 a.m. That was just an hour and a half away. It isn't unreasonable that she decided just to wait until they arrived and have them let her into the restaurant so she could get into her apartment from that location. It was a very cold night, and she might have gotten into the car and started it to keep warm, then fell asleep and was overcome. But what about that car being off, but still full of gas? It, the ignition was in the on position. Now, officers at the scene tried to start the vehicle, and they discovered that the battery was dead. The motor had been running, and then it stopped draining the battery. An automobile salesman by the name of Robert Cooper testified at the inquest and grand jury that he knew Thelma and her phaeton um, quite well. He said that the vehicle suffered an issue it would cause the engine to sometimes die if it was left idling for a long time, which could be an explanation of the engine dying without there was still gas in the tank. Police ran some experiments and three times the engine died while idling. So this actually seems very logical. Now you notice that he said she died early Sunday morning, but she was not found until Monday morning. 
Why didn't Roland West find Thelma in the garage on Sunday? The simple answer is that he didn't go there. When he didn't find her in her apartment the next day, he thought she had decided to stay with her mother or gotten up early and gone to visit her mother. And this wasn't an unusual thing. In fact, he was visiting his own mother that day who asked about where Thelma was and he told her that she was with her mother. Also, West didn't use that garage. Thelma's car was stored in there, not his. Um, he had no reason to go in there. He'd spent time in the apartment above the restaurant and admits that he answered a call from a woman looking for Thelma on Sunday, but told her, I haven't seen her all day. This is going to be the Martha Ford call. Uh, Roland West was the man she spoke to, which sort of conform confirms both of their stories. Um, we will never know the full truth of what happened. In absence of real evidence to the contrary, I favored the simple explanation that Thelma's death was not something straight out of a mystery novel, just a tragic accident. But accidents don't sell papers or books. And so the rumors have always persisted. And that's the story of the ice cream blonde. If you loved this glimpse into early Hollywood, I suggest the Forgotten Actress novels by Lainey Giles. Start with the Forgotten Flapper based on the life and mysterious death of Olive Thomas. Happy reading. As always, you can reach me at marguerite at gmail.com. You can find pictures of Thelma and other assorted cast members on my Pinterest board at Marguerite Says and also on my Facebook page, The Scalawags Podcast. And I would love to hear your theories on this case. Next week, I'm bringing you a story that you probably don't know. And it is so bonkers, you won't believe it. But until then, get out there and make some history of your own.